0: PTJ Podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. The following PTJ Podcast is the PTJ Symposium, Rehabilitation of Patients with Critical Illness. The symposium took place at APTA's Combined Sections Meeting on January 24, 2013, in San Diego, California. The participants are Dr. Michelle Koh, Dr. Diane Clark, Dr. Darren Trees, and Dr. Amy Pollack. The moderator is Dr. Patricia Otake, editor of the special series on critical illness. Introducing the symposium is Dr. James Smith, president of the acute care section of APTA.
1: Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Jim Smith, and on behalf of the acute care section, I welcome you to the program on the special series on rehabilitation for people with critical illness. Before we begin, I have some housekeeping announcements, which I'll keep brief because you've been hearing them for several days now. Uh, But uh, please do get your badge uh, scanned so that you get uh, recognition for CEUs and uh, handouts for programs here at CSM, when available, when provided by the speakers, are available off of the APTA's website, and uh, you can find that information in your handbook for the conference as well as the password to access those. Please make sure all your cell phones and other devices are turned off so that the session is not disrupted. Um, and the sessions here at CSM will be evaluated electronically. You'll receive an email email please use that email to give us feedback so that we're able to continue to offer both the, the type and the quality of presentations that you uh, expect from CSM. And now it's my pleasure to introduce the program uh, on rehabilitation of patients with critical illness. There are two organizers. The first is Jen Reynolds who is the director of evidence-based resources for APTA and also the managing editor of PTJ. Uh, Also, we have Dr. Patricia Ataki, who is a Physical Therapy Journal editorial board member. She's also associate professor, Department of Rehabilitation Science at the State University of New York at Buffalo and a physical therapist at the Cardiac Rehabilitation Department at Buffalo General Hospital. She has more than 30 peer-reviewed publications and has served as a principal or co-investigator on several projects, including a grant funded by the American Lung Association. She was the winner of the New York Physical Therapy Association's 2005 Robert A. Salant Award for Outstanding Clinical Research. I want to thank and commend both of them for this special series because it turned into both a great success but also a very large project because it uh, attracted so many submissions. So uh, now I'll turn it over to Drs. Otaki and Reynolds.
2: Thank you all so much for coming this afternoon. I can't tell you how excited I am to be here today to share this project with you. Um, As Jim Smith said, this is a symposium where we're highlighting some of the articles that were published in our special series on rehabilitation for people with critical illness. And I'd really like to start um, by letting you know that this was the efforts of a tremendous number of people. Um, Certainly, I served as physical therapy's um, editorial board member liaison as a guest editor, and I. I'm so incredibly grateful for the time and energy that the other two guest co-editors provided. Dr. Dale Strasser, who is with the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine at Emory University, and Dr. Dale Needham, who many of you may know, his name um, is with the um, Johns Hopkins group, and has been a real leader in the area of rehabilitation in the ICU. So, on behalf of the co-editors and uh, co-editors and myself we're just thrilled that so many of you have chosen to attend this session on the last afternoon of CSM so projects like this don't happen without incredible support from the leadership of the journal and again on behalf of um, the co-editors and myself we just love to extend our thanks to um, Rebecca Craig who is the editor-in-chief of physical therapy and also Dan Riddle, who is the deputy editor. And I was speaking with Becky earlier this week. She unfortunately wasn't able to stay for this um, presentation. But, um, and we were reminiscing that in 2007, the Jules Rothstein debate, um, that is held at CSM every year, questioned whether or not physical therapists should stay in acute care practice. And because at that point in time, many people were saying PT should only be in an outpatient setting and really didn't deserve or have a place in the acute setting. And if you look at Dr. Craig's editorial in the December issue, she goes on to reminisce about this article, and basically she said, we've come a long way, baby. And so she is so excited about this initiative and was really so incredibly supportive when we brought this idea to her. Um, things like this don't happen in isolation, and if it weren't for Jan Reynolds and her absolutely amazing staff at PTJ that supported this project, getting manuscripts turned around and out to reviewers and back to authors and to the editorial board members, this would never have happened. So, if you could join me in just acknowledging Jan and her team, they're amazing. If there are any reviewers in the room that reviewed and served, could you stand up so we could acknowledge you and your service on this huge project, so thank you for that. And then the authors, I would love to have had a full day session at CSM where all of the authors could have presented, but that really wasn't feasible, and so I am so thankful to all of the authors that contributed their time and energy to participate in this big project, and I really... Um, hope that we provided a nice service to our profession to actually be able to put a product like this in front of you and for our membership. So if... I'm talking to the converted, I'm sure. But as you all know, um, in medical, surgical, and respiratory ICUs, early rehabilitation interventions have been shown to be safe and feasible and are associated with these particular short-term outcomes, so a decrease of duration of mechanical ventilation, shorter ICU and hospital stays, shorter duration of delirium, and improved functional outcomes. So the things that we're not so sure about is that as we make improvements in managing the care of people with critical illness, we've, there's been an increasing um, number of individuals who have survived, but they have experienced what's been coined um, a post-intensive care syndrome. And what the post-intensive care syndrome it consists of is really long-lasting physical impairments again, long-lasting neuropsychiatric dysfunction and decreased quality of life. So we've made great strides in um, rehabilitation of individuals with critical illness in the ICU, and we're just now, as they're surviving and presenting with this post-intensive care syndrome, learning that there's more to be done yet. And so there is this continuum of care. And I'd like to acknowledge Johns Hopkins for this um, image of early rehabilitation. Um, So the challenge that we feel is in front of us as rehabilitation professionals and really the challenge that's in front of the critical care community is threefold. We feel it's very important that people continue investigators, clinicians, scientists continue to develop effective rehabilitation interventions for patients with critical illness while they're in the ICU but then beyond when they go, you know, to a subacute setting, to, you know, that entire continuum of care as they return to the community. The second challenge we feel is that it's very important to increase the awareness of post-intensive care syndrome across the continuum of care so that as these survivors of critical illness end up in outpatient settings with the functional impairments that they um, are left with because of their critical illness, that those particular rehabilitation professionals recognize this and know how to manage that. And finally... um, it's very, we feel that the challenge to us as well as physical therapists is that we should all endeavor to be committed members of interprofessional healthcare teams and promote collaborative practice. And in a conversation that I had with um, Jen Zaney, and, and Jen is a physical therapist at Hopkins, it's done a, quite a bit of work in the ICU and working with these particular patients. Um, They held a big continuing ed course with over 300 participants internationally. And as we were talking, she said people would ask these questions. And my answer was always, it takes a team. It takes a team. And I don't know, John, if you... Woods, I know Jen's in here somewhere. Is there something you want to second to that or add to that in terms of the importance of team?
3: Yeah, the best part about that course, we, it was the first course I've ever been to personally where we had doctor's positions, we had everybody, all the players in the room, and I think that's the benefit because we know we're speaking to the choir group, so, you know, we being able to pull the whole team together, I mean, that's what
0: we do on a daily
2: basis. Yeah. And so, in looking at these challenges, thank you, Jen. In looking at these challenges, we really hope that the articles that are in these two issues of our special series on critical illness is um, helping to um, help us move towards um, t- taking on these challenges and getting beyond them and really addressing these particular challenges in our profession. So the critical illness special series actually ended up being two issues. We thought it was one. We had so many. Um, we had a call for papers, and we had so many proposals um, put in that we went to Beck Craig, the editor in chief, and we said how many can we take? And she just looked at me and she said, you take all the ones that you think we will be able to publish that will meet the criteria. And so through the whole peer review process, we ended up with 20 articles that we're thrilled about. And we're, they're published in two issues. December 2012 came out in early December, and February 2013 will be out imminently. Um, there are three editorials in um, this special series. Um, Beck wrote her editorial as editor-in-chief. And then the guest editors have contributed editorials for both of those. Also, I don't know how many of you are familiar with CrakeCasts, but this is a podcast that um, Dr. Crake does introducing each issue of PTJ. So every month there's a CrakeCast that you can access from the ptjournal.org website. And she discusses the articles that are in each particular issue. And so the December crate cast is already out there. And then the February crate cast, we've recorded it and it should be available to coincide with the February issue. And I'd really like to um, encourage you to listen to both of them. but if you're not familiar with quality improvement, you'll be more familiar with it after this afternoon. But um, the crate cast for the February issue, um, there's a nice discussion about quality improvement initiatives. So initiatives where you're actually taking, um, effective interventions, interventions that have been shown to be effective through clinical trials, and translating those into the real world. Like, how do we really make that work? So, and as I said, we have 20 articles in our Thrilled. So, um, I just want to bring your attention to one more thing, and then I'll introduce our first speaker. And so, in our critical illness special series, the articles that we have are we have two profession watches, And these are articles that discuss issues that face the profession. And so I'd really encourage you to um, have a look at those. One is looking at um, really the role of rehabilitation in survivors of critical illness across the continuum of care in terms of what follows after critical illness. The other one is looking at funding mechanisms, and so how can, what funding mechanisms are available for physical therapists to access to continue research in this area. Um, there are three perspectives in this special I- issue. One is on um, ventricular assist devices and managing patients with those. Um, another perspective is a wonderful overview of ICU acquired weakness that Amy Nordencraft and her colleagues um, authored. And then there's another perspective on issues facing the profession um, that Amy Pollack authored with John Cress, and she will be presenting that today. We we're fortunate to have six research reports. I won't go into the details on those, but I'd encourage you to access those. Um, there are three excellent case reports in the February issue, and we have Darren Trees here today. who will be talking about um, his case report and the management of a patient with ICU-acquired weakness. We have two new categories of articles to PTJ. The first one is quality improvement initiatives, and we have three quality improvement initiatives. So these are articles that describe taking the evidence and putting it into real-world practice, and Diane Clark will be sharing her experience um, with a quality improvement initiative in a trauma and burn unit with us today. And then the other new article for PTJ is actually the publishing of study protocols. And um, this is, study protocols really give an opportunity for us to, where um, I have? So in, study, in publishing the study protocol, what is being published is the study protocol, right? And it's a, it's a manuscript where active registered research trials, research studies... Um, are explained and described. So there's no data in study protocols. It's just the protocol. So if you're looking for, oh, what's the answer? What did they find? That's not the place to find it. But the purpose of publishing a study protocol is that it enables scientists and funding agencies to stay current in their field um, because they know what studies are currently ongoing. So these are studies that are already... um, active and registered. So they're in process. It also prevents study duplication. So if you have a great idea for a study, a clinical trial, this is an opportunity to say, hey, what's out there? What are other people doing? And that also may give you an opportunity to collaborate because maybe you have an idea that's a little bit peripheral to what they're doing and it could work well together. And I think really the important thing is that transparency is increased because there's more detail about design and um, the protocol are available. And so giving you the background on study protocols, I'd like to introduce our first speaker. Dr. Michelle Coe is an assistant professor at the School of Rehabilitation Science at McMaster University and is a practicing physical therapist at St. St. Joseph's Healthcare ICU in Hamilton, Ontario in Canada. She holds an adjunct faculty appointment at Johns Hopkins University in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Her interests include clinical trials of early rehabilitation interventions for patients with clinical illness and also knowledge translation. Between 2010 and 2012, Dr. Koh led a phase two randomized trial of early neuromuscular electrical stimulation at the Johns Hopkins ICU under the mentorship of Drs. Dale Needham and Jeffrey Palmer. Her research was funded by a fellowship and Bisbee Prize from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, which is the Canadian equivalent of NIH. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Koh. Thank you. Well, I'm really honored to be here today, and
4: I really feel blessed to be able to present this trial on behalf of our team. I'd like to acknowledge Dr. Alexander Trong from, from Emory University and Dale Needham, who really designed this elegant trial. I'm also grateful to my study team of blinded outcomes assessors, of which Julie Skurzat and Jennifer Zaney are here today, as well as uh, the therapists who did research sessions, of which Nancy Ciesla has contributed a tremendous amount. I'm grateful to CIHR and to Care Rehab for funding the study. So if we think about the continuum of physical activity in the ICU, we can think of this sort of from a physiology perspective. And if we think of things that can happen to a patient in the ICU, we can imagine they can be a complete bed rest, or they could receive things that are completely passive. On the other hand, what we really want to be doing with our patients is do, th- do things that are completely active where they're engaged. So what we're thinking of, though, is sometimes patients in the ICU, they're just too sick. And can we offer them something? So what we're thinking of doing is we wanted to offer neuromuscular electrical stimulation to these patients. And as you know, this comes by a bunch of different names, e or FES. And from an ICU perspective, where we are is that patients are simply receiving the electrical stimulation in the ICU. They're not actively engaged in receiving the electrical stimulation. Quick hands up for anyone who's done NEMS in the ICU with ICU patients. So just a few. So this is something that's still experimental and I'll be curious to hear your perspectives on where we are in the field. So as you know, we always have contraindications and things to consider, I think particularly with our critically ill patients. And we want to consider whether or not patients have pacemakers or implanted defibrillators, applying NEMs over any sorts of infected tissues, over any suspected malignancy, over untreated DVTs, areas of uncontrolled bleeding, over damaged skin, However, it is okay to do NEMS over intact skin, over implants containing metal, plastic, or cement. And for further reading, I suggest you go to a full issue of Physiotherapy Canada that was in October of 2010 that's dedicated to contraindications of electrophys- electrophysical agents. I'm going to give you a brief overview of the key NEMS trials. And this is really important because we need to understand in which settings we have evidence. So first is a study by Zanotti and colleagues that was published in CHEST in 2003. This was conducted in a cohort of patients who were chronically ventilated for at least 30 days, and they were bed-bound. 24 patients were randomized to either NEMS or control, and the intervention was NEMS five days a week, by four weeks, to the quads and vasti for 30 minutes, plus active limb mobilization. The control group was active limb mobilization. And the primary outcome measure was measurement of muscle strength. Unfortunately, the authors did not report which muscles were tested, and unfortunately there was no information on whether or not the outcomes assessors were blinded to which group the patients were in. However, with those caveats, we can see that if higher numbers mean that patients have more strength, those in the NEMS group experienced more strength than those in the control group. Next, the second trial that's important for us is the trial that was published by the group from Greece, led by Sarah from NANIS. This was a study that was done in patients who were acutely ill, Patients were uh, randomized and admitted to the trial within day two of their ICU admission, and they had to have an Apache score or a severity of illness score that indicated they were somewhat sick. 142 patients were randomized to either daily NEMS for about 60 minutes, again to the rectus femoris and vastus intermedius. The control group wasn't as well reported in the trial, and their primary outcome was ICU acquired weakness when the patients woke up in the ICU. This was measured as the sum of the MRC sum score, essentially looking at muscle strength bilaterally in upper and lower limbs. And overall, 24 patients in the NEMS group and 28 patients contributed to this outcomes assessment. And we'll expect that If there are fewer patients that have ICU-acquired weakness, this is a good thing. And indeed, in patients exposed to NEMS, fewer developed ICU-acquired weakness at awakening in the ICU. So if we look big picture, what is the current evidence supporting NEMS in mechanically ventilated patients? We need to think about what treatment setting we're in. And first, we only have seven unique randomized trials representing only 160 patients around the world. The sample sizes vary from 8 to 140. And we've studied patients with chronic mechanical ventilation in one trial, which is the trial that we just talked of 24 patients. And the remainder of the studies have occurred in patients with COPD, pneumonia, or sepsis. If we think of comparisons, the comparisons have been routine care sham, which is NEMS made to look exactly like the controller, the intervention, but just not turning on electricity, or comparing one side of the body to the other. Unfortunately, it's a bit of a mixed bag in terms of what parameters were used. And this has been a big thing at Hopkins in terms of where do we start from when a lot of the different trials use different settings. The trials varied from just turning the muscle on to achieving maximal muscle contraction. They varied in duration, from 30 to 60 minutes. But they also varied in the number of days per week where patients received the interventions. And I think most important for a physiotherapy audience, if we think of the international classification of function, we're going to care about what happens to the patient so that they can return back to doing the things that they want to do. And this is important to note in terms of what outcomes have been measured. The main outcomes measured so far have been around body structure, microcirculation, muscle size, that sort of thing. Some studies have looked at body function, and a few studies have looked at activity. However, it's important to note that no studies yet have measured um, outcomes beyond ICU awakening. So big picture, what are the results? If we were to look at patients who are in a chronic ventilator setting, NEMS improves muscle strength, and patients can transfer from bed to chair about three days earlier. If we were to look at the acute care setting, right now, if we look at quads muscle volume, it's a bit of a wash. In terms of the development of ICU-acquired weakness at awakening, this seems to favor NEMS. And if we were to look at leg muscle strength, this also seems to favor NEMS. So what is our pilot trial about? As Patricia mentioned, I'm sorry, I don't have any results for you. We would love to have results for you. But what I'm going to do is share with you our research design. So we thought, well, what happens if we were to do NEMS in newly mechanically ventilated patients for 60 minutes a day, daily while the patient's in the ICU, compared to everything that looks like NEMS, except for turning on the, the electricity. And we were interested in understanding whether this has an impact on muscle strength at hospital discharge. The muscles that we're studying include the quads, tibialis anterior, and gastrox. Here is an example of one of our patients who's on trial. This is a gentleman who's quite young. He was super sick. He had ARDS. He was oscillated and he was in the ICU for over two months. So this is the sort of patient where we think, gosh, they're just going to waste away. Will this be helpful? So who was eligible for a trial? The first cut is, have you been ventilated for at least one day and are expected to be in the ICU for an additional two days? However, you would not be eligible for a trial if you weren't able to understand or speak English, and that's because the outcome measures that we're doing are dependent on being able to follow commands in English. If you weren't able to transfer independently at baseline, or if you had some sort of neuro condition that would prevent us from looking at whether or not the NEMS would work. We would exclude people if they were transferred to our ICU from another ICU after being vented for more than four days. If they were not expected to survive their ICU stay. If they had an implanted defibrillator. If they were pregnant, or if they had a BMI more than forty-five, sorry, more than thirty-five kilograms per meter square, which is obese. This has been the most fun part of seeing this trial come to fruition, because the trial has really hinged on the physical therapists who carry full caseloads and are doing our outcomes assessments. Patients are randomized to either receiving NEMS 60 minutes a day or to sham. Our primary outcome is muscle strength at hospital discharge. Our secondary outcomes include looking at muscle strength using handheld dynamometry, overall body strength, grip strength, duration of mechanical ventilation, mortality, hospital discharge destination. If we think of what it might look like for the patient as they were to go through our study, Patients are first admitted to the ICU, and they're potentially eligible after being ventilated for at least one day. Throughout their ICU stay, they'll be exposed to the research intervention, which is on top of the existing therapy that they receive. And at Hopkins, this is a culture of early mobility. As soon as patients are awake in the ICU, regardless of whether they're delirious or not, we start doing outcomes assessments. And these are done by therapists who have been specially trained to measure the outcomes reliably. And what they do is they prioritize their caseload. Patients will receive therapy per usual throughout the ICU stay, but also on the ward. And they'll also have outcomes assessments at ICU discharge and in hospital discharge. In total, based on our sample size calculation, to look at a 25% difference in muscle strength, we're expecting that we will need 54 patients to survive to ICU discharge, which is about 27 patients per group. I just spoke to our team back in Baltimore and just learned that um, we still have a patient on trial. We have one patient who just had their last hospital discharge assessment. And what I think is really fantastic for the profession and fantastic for our team is that we have no missing hospital discharge outcome data for those patients who could be assessed. And that's really a testament to the therapist's involvement and passion for trying to move forward the field of ICU rehab. In terms of safety, these are the safety considerations for the research sessions. And as Jen Zaney pointed out in our, in our session earlier this week, this is about trying to do the best we can for our patients with the data that we had at the time. So, these are things that we're considering in the focus of research. And it's always, if you're thinking of doing rehab with patients in a clinical setting, you're also to go, going to want to make sure that you're engaging your team. So, we had some guidelines around cardiovascular instability before even initiating research sessions and any metabolic changes. We also wanted to set up some specific physiological guidelines to stop research sessions because we, these patients are critically ill. We don't want to make them worse. In terms of methodological critical appraisal, there are some advantages to our trial in that we are doing a randomized trial. It's a pilot trial. And we have allocation concealment. And this is important because as we're screening patients, as we're getting consent from patient substitute decision makers we don't know which group the patients are going to be assigned to. And this is important so we don't cherry-pick people who we think might do well in NEMS. The people who are caring for the critically ill patients don't know which group the patients are assigned to. And the way we overcome can you see muscle contractions or not is very simple. We put a sheet over top of the patient's legs, and we'll just look under the sheet from time to time, to see whether or not the patients continue to have muscle contractions. And this is something that's very clever that Alex Strong and Dale Needham came up with in terms of ensuring blinding. Our outcomes assessors are blinded to treatment allocation. We will analyze patients by randomization. And we will enroll, we will ensure that all enrolled patients that continue to, contribute to the primary analysis. analysis However, we're only going to be able to include those who survive to hospital discharge. So what are the strengths and limitations of our trial? The strengths are this is a pilot RCT. And it's important to do pilot RCTs because you can imagine if you're going to do a multi-center RCT internationally, you've got to get everything sort of queued up to make sure that it's feasible in terms of recruitment, that you can actually deliver the intervention and ensure that you can get all those kinks worked out. We have randomized concealed allocation. It's based on a sample size calculation. We have blinded outcomes assessors, and we're doing outcome measures at hospital discharge. However, in terms of limitations, we know that muscle strength is not a patient-centered outcome. And once we have the results from this trial, does this mean that it's ready for prime time at the bedside? One of the things that uh, part of our team is doing is we have funding from CIHR to do a knowledge synthesis grant involving researchers and end users to do a systematic and methodological review of NEMS in the ICU. And once we have our results, we'll be able to contextualize our results within the body of literature of NEMS in mechanically ventilated patients. So, is NEMS ready for clinical use? As we saw that, that gentleman, someone who's super sick, we can offer them something. It can be done in sedated patients, it can occur in supine, and it can be done with one person. However... It's something that's completely passive. We need to make sure that the patient's muscles can actually get the current. And this is limited by obesity, swelling, and other issues. And Sunita Mather and um, Vince Lowe at the University of Toronto are also looking at this. And they're also doing ultrasound measurements in patients, which is going to be really fantastic. We don't have outcomes beyond ICU awakening. And I think if all of you are thinking through your clinical caseloads, what are you going to do? Are you going to do something that's passive, or if you only have limited time with that patient, will you choose to do something more active? So in summary, that's the big picture of what we're doing. The study's ongoing. We're really excited about it, and we look forward to recruiting our last few patients for the results. And again, as we're thinking of this continuum of activity, NEMS fits in as something completely passive, but it's something that we can start to offer our patients. If you want to hear more about what we're doing at Hopkins, we are going to be re-offering our ICU course in March, on March 9th and 10th. Jen Zaney uh, will be able to take your information if you'd like a bit more information. Thank you again for your time.
2: We have built in some time for questions at the end, but maybe we'd like to take one or two questions after each presentation. You,
5: um, do you have a therapist applying the treatment every day, and do you have a therapist applying the hour-long lack
4: of treatment? Yeah. yeah, great question. So the question was, do we have a therapist applying the treatment every day, and do we have a therapist applying the sham treatment every day? This trial has been really challenging to coordinate because we essentially have to have two groups of therapists. We have one group of therapists who is primarily led primarily led. By Nancy Ciesla as a research assistant, and Karen Oak Jones-Burgess, who is a critical care nurse, and they're primarily responsible for delivering the treatment interventions, regardless of, it, of whether it's SHAM or NEMS. When I was at Hopkins, I sat through hundreds of research interventions at the bedside uh, with these patients as well. I was just wondering, like, what's
3: your vision for this like, the future? Your studies start to show, yes, it works on these few muscles, but any vision
4: like the patient... All these electrodes all over their bodies. You know, it's it's a really good question. The question is what what do we envision for the role of NEMS in the future? And do we expect someone to see be completely wired with electrodes over their body? You know, it's a tough question. I think we need to think of NEMS as a tool. We need to think of all sorts of different things that we can begin to offer patients. It's gonna be challenging to see where it, where it fits in, especially with the limited time the projected expected increase in demand for critical care the expected increase shortage of physiotherapists so what is the opportunity cost of our time could this be something that could be delegated so there's lots of things to, to sort out and I think that's what's going to be exciting about our systematic review and knowledge synthesis is that we're going to have uh, clinicians researchers and decision makers, all sitting around the table. It's a multidisciplinary group, including physicians and nurses and physios, um, adults and pediatrics. And we'll talk about, well, here's the state of the evidence. Are we going to invest in buying NEMS machines? Are we going to invest in training therapists to do this? Or is this something that we're just going to keep our eye out on
2: and maybe not change practice yet? Thank you very much, Michelle. Our next presentation is um, going to be given by Dr. Diane Clark. And as I said, um, this article that Dr. Clark authored um, is a new article category for PTJ in that it's a quality improvement initiative. And Dr. Clark is an assistant professor and associate program director in the physical therapy department at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Dr. Clark received her undergraduate degree in physical therapy from McGill University, and her master's in business administration from Georgetown University, and her doctor of science degree in physical therapy from UAB. Her research is focused in the areas of patient management in the acute care setting, as well as health literacy. She has 30 years of clinical experience in the acute care setting, so a wealth of of experience is brought to her project. Um, We just found out, I'll give you a little aside, we went to the same university. I graduated a year before Dr. Clark did, so (laughs) I'm in the same category. Um, Her clinical interests include cardiopulmonary physical therapy, diabetes, and wound care. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Clark.
6: Thank you. Um, I'm delighted to be here this afternoon. The word team, I think, is going to keep coming up again and again this afternoon because that's what it took to get this initiative off off the ground and and make this happen. Um, Helen Matthews is here. She's my boss. (laughs) Um, But she was really the brainchild of this initiative um, from the PT standpoint and really was boots on the ground every day making sure that this initiative happened. Um, I don't know if John Lohman is here. No. Um, Russell Griffin was our statistician, thank goodness. And Donald Reeve is the medical director of the Trum Burns ICU. So one of my mentors told me that you need to tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then repeat what you were going to tell them. So, you know, in case you need to leave or fall asleep or whatever, Here are the, here's the key information from this study that I wanted you to walk away with. Um, one, this was a col- quality improvement project that um, we undertook. It was designed by an, an interdisciplinary team, and I'll go into who the team members were in just a minute. Um, collaboration and interdependence were so much more important to us than the coordination that existed before, coordination across silos, um, when you focus on the patient, everything changes. Um, data, data, data. And I think that what came up in a presentation on Tuesday morning. Change is never easy. So you have to be in there for the long term. And sustainability is even harder. So those are sort of my take-home messages for this afternoon. Um, I work at UAB Hospital as a physical therapist, and it is a level one trauma center with about 900 beds. In 2004, the emergency room and the trauma and burns unit were given a a makeover because the volume was outstripping our capacity. And um, so we went from, I guess in 2004, we were seeing about 55,000 visits a year, But by 2008, the number of visits in the emergency room um, was over 70,000. So again, we were facing a capacity issue. Um, We were on diversion more often than administration would have liked, um, and many of our patients required critical care. So we were the only level one trauma hospital in the area, and being on diversion and people needing critical care was not good. Um, As well, in the trauma and burns ICU, our census... um, Varied between somewhere between 25 and 26 patients in the beds out of 28 beds. And so we, um, we undertook a quality initiative process to try to see if we could increase the, throw, the throughput through the Trauma and Burns ICU. And for those of you not familiar with um, the PDCA model, um, it is Plan, Do, Check, Act. And so plan is to identify and analyze the problem. So we knew that there was a problem with our throughput through the TBICU. Do was to develop and test a possible solution. Check was to measure effectiveness, look for improvement. Act was to implement the improved solution fully. So this is the process that we undertook. So... During this time where we were struggling with capacity issues in the ICU, um, not only was administration and the trauma and burns nurse and doctors looking for solutions, but um, Helen Matthews had stayed up on, uh, on the literature, was really familiar with early mobility, had really gotten us interested in pursuing something like early mobility in the TBICU. Given that we were mobility experts... We thought we should get in there and really try to um, take a lead and be supportive in an initiative that may help increase throughput, decrease lengths of stay and getting patients out of the ICU. Here is the team that was involved in making this initiative possible. And I don't have names for everybody that was involved, but Dr. Rue is the chief of the Trauma & Burns um, and Surgical Critical Care Service, Donald Reef was the medical director of the TBICU and worked with us most closely. Russell was the stats person, and I don't know about you, but my stats is not great. So he was um, very helpful in pulling the data together and making it all make sense to us. Helen Matthews, the acute care manager. John Lohman is on faculty with us at uh, UAB, and Kelly Shields was the nurse educator who was really an advocate, a champion for this project from the nursing side of things. And then you can see that all the other trauma and burn physicians, physician assistants, nurses, managers, PTs, respiratory therapists, the trauma registry staff, which is, we have a trauma um, database. that we pulled all this data from. And so without their help, this wouldn't have been possible. And then hospital administration actually played a really key role in making this happen for us. So as part of the, the DO initiative, in um, after we had decided that this was going to be a quality uh, improvement process, um, the real work started in January of 2009, where we had to look at how do we take the evidence that exists primarily in medical and respiratory ICUs and adapt it to the trauma and burns population because those are two very different populations. Who was going to be the interdisciplinary team? Who was going to be the champions to make sure that this happened on a day-to-day basis? Because if you don't have people who are constantly in there um, bringing this issue to the forefront, you know on a day-to-day basis that things get lost, And so we identified champions in nursing and physical therapy, um, and then the physicians were also our champions. So we thought we would do a pilot evaluation. Obviously, safety is a key consideration when you look at translating knowledge into a different population than what's been demonstrated in the literature. So the first thing we wanted to do was to make sure that we could be safe in implementing an early mobility pro- program in this um, population. And just to give you an idea, I pulled this data together just to show you that the trauma and burns population an event, an acute event happens to them. They're either in a car accident, they have um, a severe burn, something acute happens to them. So they're not admitted to a medical ICU where they've had long standing, perhaps chronic uh, obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, you know, long-standing comorbid conditions. Instead, these are acute trauma patients coming in, perhaps with underlying comorbidities. But the main reason why they're in the hospital is not those comorbidities, like they are in the medical ICU and the respiratory ICU. Um, So you can see from our population that they're they're different than what you see in an MICU. Um, Looking at the intervention... Um, we wanted to determine contraindications to the protocol. We knew what was being, um, what was out there in the evidence, but we wanted to make it more specific and tailor it to the trauma and burns ICU. Um, our personnel and resources—you need people and manpower to do early mobility. And so, from a PT standpoint, Helen was incredible. She was able to put together a package that administration bought, and we were given an additional FTE um, to pursue this initiative with. Um, Resources, our biggest problem with resources was chairs by the bedside. So (laughs) we'll come back to chairs by the bedside when we talk about sustainability. Um, (laughs) Staff education was uh, something that we needed to address from the PT side. Um, issues related to uh, ventilation management, uh, being able to mobilize patients while they were still on the ventilator, sedation. We had to learn more about sedation. On the nursing side, um, there were more concerns related to You know, yes, they can transfer patients, but not patients who are typically ventilated, who have X-fixes, drains, catheters, whatever going on. And so we had to bump up their level of education related to mobility under those circumstances. Sedation management never changed. Um, There was a protocol in place that the nurses managed. And so the patient was given as much sedation as was required. and so that didn't change. We, don't, we didn't have vacation holidays, uh, sedation holidays, but um, that's how the, the sedation aspect of the study was managed. There were barriers. Now you can imagine going and, and bringing this idea to your, fa- your staff um, who are not necessarily used to getting people up while on ventilators. And so the, the biggest barrier that we faced was fear. Fear that we would do something to harm the patients, both from the nursing side of things and the, and the PT side of things. And so we spent a lot of time showing them the evidence and sort of reassuring people that there were stopgap measures in place so that if things weren't working out, that they, we would stop. The other issue um, was time. People were really afraid that there would not be time to do everything else they had to do in the day, including mobilizing patients. and so. If, for nursing, this was the biggest change for them because they they were going to be mobilizing patients on the evenings and night shifts. Um, and so we had to make some... We modified the protocol a little bit so that they could manage that across the, the 24-hour period. Communication and coordination, um, it became so much more important. You know, we thought communication and coordination was about, okay, my schedule is going to let me get this patient up at 10 o'clock. Was that going to work for you? That didn't work under early mobility. (laughs) So um, We spent a lot more time doing um, preparatory communication, getting reports from the physician assistants as to what was going on with that patient, when they had surgery planned for that day, what was going on the next day. And we stopped asking each other what was good for our schedule and started asking each other what was the best time to get the patient up And so that really, you know, was a profound, I think, insight when we flipped that equation over to what is best for the patient. So as far as um, the protocol that we used, it was um, adapted from the Peter Morris protocol that was used at Wake Forest. Um, Patients were admitted to the ER and then to the ICU. At that point, the PT role was for us to do the initial patient screening. Um, and to assign the patient mobility level, we were responsible for identification of passive range of motion precautions because nursing was going to be pursuing that throughout the um, at least once per day, um, doing passive range of motion, and then we would do the physical therapy exam when it was appropriate. This is um, sort of a, just a very short snapshot of the protocol that we used and You can find this protocol. Um, It's based on... It was developed by Peter Morris. So level one, not able to participate. Level two, able to follow commands sitting up in the bed. Level three, sitting on the edge of the bed. And four, withstanding transfers and walking. So... Here we are, the first Monday in May. We set, a, we set a target for when we were going to start the initiative um, because we felt if we just said, well, we're going to phase it in, that it would never get done. So we set a hard date um, and started collecting pilot data um, between May and August of 2009. And so in, during this time period, we were assessing the the safety and feasibility of doing mobility in, this, in the trauma and burns population. We collected data related to lengths of stay um, and complications in the patients. What we found at the end of the four months was that we had a decrease in ventilator-acquired pneumonias. It was statistically significant, and we had a decrease in uh, deep vein thromboses. We did no harm. There were no adverse effects, so we were very happy with that. What we did see, which we were surprised, was that we had an increase in pressure ulcers during that time. So we didn't know if that was related to having the patient sit up, perhaps in bed, or it was seasonal, because summertime for us is, you know, we see a lot more uh, of individuals coming in with spinal cord injuries. And so we didn't know if that was something related more to the patient population over that short time period or if it was something that we were going to do, that we were responsible for. So we debriefed everybody. Um, We told them the results. And You know, really, when we looked at decrease in ventilator-acquired pneumonias and DVTs, everybody was so excited. They said, yes, we're going to continue this, and we're going to go for it over a period of a year. So we collected data um, from May 2009 to April 2010, so over a one-year period. And what we did because we had the trauma registry, that database of information, we were able to use information on every patient that was admitted to the TBICU during this year period and compare it to individuals who were admitted the previous year. And so we had a historical cohort to compare to. So we ended up with an N of over 2,000 patients that we had data for. And so this was, um, you know, the design was a retrospective cohort study. And when we looked and compared the two groups, the groups that received early mobility to those who did not, the group that received early mobility, um, they were an older population, more females. The injury severity score, which is a measure of the extent of the trauma that an individual has, Um, was statistically lower, but clinically didn't make a difference. So it wasn't really clinically significant. Um, The population that we worked with in early mobility had a higher incidence of comorbidities. So they were actually a sicker population than the group that did not receive early mobility. And here are our results. Now, I can tell you a little bit about risk ratios, but I would certainly appreciate it if you did not ask me any extensive questions (laughs) related to this. (laughs) Um, So a risk ratio, you're looking at the probability that something is going to happen in your targeted group, which for us was early mobility, to the probable risk that it was going to happen in your regular group, or the group that didn't receive early mobility. And so if you have a risk ratio of one, it means that the risk was the same. If your risk ratio is lower, it means that the risk was lower. And if it's higher, it means that the risk ratio was higher in that group. So what we saw was the risk ratios for airway complications, pulmonary, pneumonia vascular, and DVT were lower significantly lower in our early mobility group, even though they were a sicker population. There was one blip on the radar, and that was the cardiovascular complications. And though it wasn't statistically different, it was trending towards significance. And so we thought we'd better look at this in greater depth. And what we looked at when we sort of drilled down into the cardiovascular complications, we found that it was related to pericardial effusions in tamponade, nothing that a physical therapist hopefully would um, inflict upon a patient, that it was related to the trauma rather than to the physical therapy intervention. And so um, we, you know, we did not um, worry about that as much anymore. Our length of stay went down, but it wasn't statistically um, significant when we accounted for the injury severity score. We didn't see a, discharge, a change in our discharge disposition, and we didn't see any ad- adverse events. In fact, mortality decreased during the study. So I, you know, because of the study design, we can't draw any s- direct conclusions, but certainly we didn't make matters any worse. Um, so so what? So early mobili- uh, mobility in trauma burns is safe, and it did reduce complications, and we think it saved the hospital money. Um, the culture where mobility is the cornerstone is so different than when it was before, or before we uh, underwent this initiative. And collaboration really became, really defined the relationship, I think, among the team players, the team members who worked with the patients in this unit. The one question that we really have and would like to be able to come up with an answer to is dosage. How much mobility is enough? It is a costly service, so how much mobility is needed to make this kind of change? And we don't have an answer for that. One of the things I'd like to say at this point in time is that you know, we stepped out of our comfort zone as an acute care PT department and as physical therapist. In doing that, I think we gained recognition as being innovative, that other departments and disciplines saw us as collaborators, and we were able to work very effectively outside of our silos. Um, and, you know, this was a new program that we were critical in developing and making and uh, implementing. So I guess part of my take-home message to you today is... Dare to be a a leader at all levels. Don't be afraid to to take a stand in the hospital and be seen as someone who can help make change. Be involved in solutions. Have a seat at the table. We need to be seen as problem solvers, not as cost centers. Volunteer your skills outside of the department. We have a lot to offer the hospital. We're very highly trained. And I think one of the things that really struck me um, during this initiative was we have to make friends with people that we don't normally work with, sort of the non-traditional partners. Um, not just your PTs and OTs and nurses, but you know, reach out to your, your stats people, to hospital administration, to the uh, trauma registry people. I mean, there were all kinds of people that we worked with in order to make this happen. And above all, my symbolic message is don't just ride a bike, Dare to be the pay-sitter, but not necessarily Lance Armstrong. Um, <laughs> don't just climb out of bed in the morning, but dare to climb a mountain. Um, it's, I think if we fulfill our potential as a profession, that we'll make uh, great changes in, in the medical field. So that's my message. Are there questions? Do we have time, Patricia? Okay.
3: How is it today in your ICU? Like, what is the
6: dose you and how is it going to live? Okay, so, so um, what is the situation in our TB ICU today, and how much dosage are we are we delivering? Are we up to one and a half? We have two, full-time. two full-time FTEs for the 28 beds, and I think on average we see probably 70% of those or more than that, 80%. Um, Dosage is difficult to measure, um, so I don't know if we can tell you that. I think one of the reasons why I talked about chairs earlier on is the TBICU went into a person-centered mode, and so instead of having just um, discrete visiting times during the day, family members, one family member can stay in the room with the patient, and guess who sits in the chair? <laughs> it's those chairs that are <laughs> so critical. <laughs> um, and so you're gonna find challenges, I think, you know, throughout um, throughout the, the implementation of this kind of program. Can we take
2: one more question? The
6: like this day data that you show mm-hmm. like uh, discharge from the hospital from the unit. Um, The one I showed, the question is, um, was the length of stay data that I showed from the the length of stay in the TBICU or from the hospital? That was from the TBICU. And part of the reasons why we don't think that um, the the, um, length of stay changed, one is because Patients require procedures. I mean, a lot of time while they're in the TBICU, they're having surgical procedures done, and there's no way to hurry that along, so to speak. Um, and so there are defined, I think, um, procedures and tasks that need to be done in the TBICU, and so we really didn't make an impact in that length of stay. The madness behind the question is, mm-hmm. do you have an aggressive mobility program post-unit? Mm-hmm. Because what we find is we have great progressive mobility in our units. So yes. They may not be as aggressive once they leave, so the physicians aren't as interested in pushing them out uh, of the unit knowing that maybe that progressive mobility isn't as strong. So. Okay, so great mobility within the TBICU, but perhaps on the floor the level of focus on mobility is, is not as intensive. Um, I think that there's probably some truth in that. Um, in our setting. The other thing that we face is uh, many of our trauma patients have no insurance. Um, and so the discharge planning, I think, can be a real challenge in, in trying to get and find a place for them to move beyond the hospital. I don't know if other people have that similar issue with trauma patients.
2: Thank you very much, Dr. Clark. Our next presentation is a case report, and as you all know, case reports serve a very, very important purpose for informing us of an initial intervention with a patient that can then help us to progress to designing more observational and perhaps randomized controlled trials. And so um, our next presenter is Dr. Darren Trees, and Darren is the rehab manager at Solera Hospital in Conroe, Texas and has 17 years of experience in ICU rehab. He's a frequent guest lecturer on the topic of ICU rehabilitation and has presented on the subject at state, national, and international levels. Darren was also the recipient of the Mary Sinat Award for Clinical Excellence in Acute Care from the acute care section in 2004. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Trees. All right, um, for this presentation, we'll
0: be talking about mobilization strategies <clears throat> for the patient with ICU-acquired weakness. And the uh, co-authors are Jim Smith, which I really want to thank. He took this paper to a much higher level. And uh, Steve Hawker. Now, when a patient is admitted to the ICU, the number one priority is to preserve life. Unfortunately, the period of bed rest that's required to get that patient medically stable uh, can be anywhere from a few days to several weeks, and it has a huge number of secondary complications. In fact, the disability caused by bed rest is oftentimes more severe than that of the initial illness or injury. So a a clear understanding of these effects is really crucial in order to help guide us with clinical decision-makings. I don't have time to go over all these complications, but what I want to really highlight is what's going on with the musculoskeletal system. Um, bed rest causes osteoporosis, uh, weakness, contractures. And if we um, look at the, the uh, NASA bed rest studies, uh, we'll see that strength declines at a rate of about 3 to 5% with healthy individuals. Okay, also what the bed rest studies have shown us is that uh, the anti-gravity muscles are really affected with bed rest. So these are your plantar flexors, uh, your hip and knee extensors, your back muscles. These are as much losing strength, uh, much quicker than the other muscle groups. Okay, also um, in the neurological um, system, we see depression, anxiety. These patients uh, lose self-confidence really easily. Um, also for patients with sepsis and multi-organ failure, we're at a high risk for uh, critical illness polyneuropathy and critical illness myopathy. And this can really uh, cause profound muscle weakness and a difficulty weaning off the ventilator. Um, Prior to just four or five years ago, that was the extent of the evidence for supporting mobility. We didn't really have any empirical data, and as we know now, there's a lot of studies uh, that are supporting uh, early mobility like we've all been talking about. Uh, one of the first studies, uh, which, which you highlighted earlier, was uh, Dr. Peter Morris in, in 2008, and they were really ones to, to come up with the protocol that um, methodically advanced patients through uh, activity levels based on their strength and their levels of uh, or their response to treatment. And just briefly um, going over that again: Level one is an unconscious patient, just passive range of motion. Uh, level two is when a patient could follow commands and they started doing active assistive range of motion. Once the patient could move their arm against gravity, is when they would start sitting the patient up and working on trunk control. Once the patient can move their leg against gravity, it's whenever they would start working on standing and ambulation. Okay, um, some of the challenges that that we have found uh, whenever we're working with these really profound patients is the amount of manual assistance that they can require. Okay, um, just an example, the sit to stand transition can be extremely difficult. It takes a lot more strength and a lot more metabolic demand to stand compared to sitting. And it's very common that we are doing maximal assistance and we're standing these patients for maybe a few seconds, and it's really not doing too much as far as trying to get those adaptations of physical capacity. Um, Also, another challenge is whenever we do get them standing up, patients with critical illness myopathy have, uh, have weakness in the hands. They have tricep weakness. It's really difficult for them to begin using a rolling walker. Um, finally, the psychological effect of manually standing these patients—you uh, know—if they can only stand and support 20% of the body weight, we're, we're you know holding the other 80% of their body weight. And is this really psychologically uplifting for them? Because they you know, we're asking them to do something that we really they can't do. Um, it's a little bit beyond their one rep max. Um, so the goal at our facility was to develop a mobility protocol program. Uh, that allowed an orderly transition from bed rest to ambulation using some new rehab devices. And another um, reason for this was, was so that we can customize the program more to what the patient needs. It's not a set protocol. You go sitting to standing and everything. It's, these are some suggestions of what we can do in different phases. So um, phase one is really unchanged from Dr. Morris. It's a uh, patient can't follow simple commands, mostly passive range of motion in the, uh, in the, um, by nursing and sitting up. Once a patient can follow simple commands is whenever we move to phase two. Uh, this is a severely weak patient, unable to stand, you know, maximal assistance for sitting edge of bed. This is your profound weakness. Uh, the treatment suggestions are active assistive range of motion, uh, begin sitting balance activities to help improve trunk control. Okay, and what we added here was we added partial weight-bearing exercise with a mobile leg press. And this is something that I was involved with developing uh, it comes from about 12 years ago when we modified a regular tilt table uh, in order for a burn patient to be able to pr- perform active exercise on it. Um, if we, um, what it is is basically the patient can do a, an inclined legs, uh, leg press with a so- small percentage of body weight, say 10 15%, and we can gradually incline that to get more and more body weight and try to get it, get it to where they can stand with moderate assistance instead of just going straight to 100% standing. Okay, and then the next criteria is to move to phase three is whenever they can actually support that body weight and transfer with like modest assist or so. Okay, and this is a, a video of a patient from about 10 years ago. He's been in bed for two weeks, extremely weak, and it just, this really shows the challenge of manually standing a patient. Okay, he's extremely weak. I have very awkward uh, where my hands are positioned. He has a large abdominal wound as well, so I can't put a gait belt around him. Um, but he was in the bed for two weeks, and that just exhausts him. You stand him up for a few seconds, and that's all he can do. And so what we did with the, uh, this is the modified tilt table back then, and uh, we could bring him to a small percentage of body weight and have him do a longer treatment session and actually do something that's simulating sit-to-stand, a closed-chain activity. Okay, you can see he's going to come down and touch my hand. And the first repetition was a little bit too easy, so I can kind of bring up the incline, get more body weight, and actually work on effective strength training, you know, doing three reps, or I'm sorry, three sets of 10 at 70% of a one rep max. Okay, also what's uh, what the rationale for this was uh, it's a closed chain activity. We're, we're working multiple muscle groups at one time, your knee extensors, your hip extensors, all the muscles that are that are losing strength the quickest and it's simulating that sit to stand, which is our goal. Okay, so phase three is whenever a patient is still weak but can support their body weight. And what we added here is a progressive standing with a hydraulic assist platform walker. Okay, and this is similar to a regular platform walker except that it assists the patient up to a standing position and kind of doesn't, we we don't have to manually lift them all the way up to it. And we'll see some video of this in a little bit. Uh, The next criteria was whenever a patient was walking 10 feet with a walker is when we moved to phase four. And the only reason we made it for 10 feet is that's the distance from the patient's bed to the hallway. A phase four patient was just somebody that was walking in the hallway. So it kind of gives us a way to identify what kind of patient is at what level. And for phase four, it's just progressive walking, transfers, endurance, balance activities, and uh, promoting independence with the exercise program. So uh, getting on to the case case report, Uh, this is a 73-year-old active and very independent female. She underwent a routine outpatient cardioversion for AFib. Uh, The following day, she developed multiple complications. Uh, She developed pneumonia. She became septic. She required, I think, three or four days of pressers. Uh, she was respiratory failure requiring the vent support. Um, she, she had a tracheotomy and a peg done and at the that uh, faci- the short term acute care hospital she was at before they had mostly done just nursing passive range of motion by nursing. Um, I work at a long term acute care hospital, and she was transferred to us on day number twenty one and This next video shows day one and it was it 's really crazy that I, I wanted to do a case report and film this for to educate. Um, uh, students at the program to see what the whole continuum looks like and uh, she was just really became ju- she was just a perfect case to do this uh, anyways this is the uh, of the uh, the manual muscle testing of day one to kind of show how I okay, well, can you try to move your ankles back and forth okay, well, try to hold it up right there hold it over here hold it right there Okay, try to bend this knee. Good. Bend it for you. Okay, try to kick this foot up into the air. Oh, good. A little bit. Okay, over here, try to bend this knee. Good. Okay? All right, going to try to extend that foot up off the bed. Good. Now push out in my hand. Push. Good job. How about your arms? Can you lift your arms up? Yep. Try to lift this hand up to right here. Good. Hand down. On your right one, can you try to lift it up? She's two out of five. All right. Well, we'll start tomorrow. We'll get to do some exercise. Right, so a clinical impression, the patient was alert, she followed commands, uh, she was on mechanical ventilation at CPAP mode at 45% oxygen, vitals were very stable, uh, manual muscle testing, um, you, the MRC set sum score came out to be about an 18, uh, severe weakness is, is anything less than 36, uh, so sensory, she was impaired in a stocking glove distribution. And uh, whenever we tried to sit this patient up on the side of the bed, it required two of us. It was max assist. We did the kind of the pivot at the edge of bed. She sat up for about 30 seconds, and she became dizzy and had to sit back down. So really, really poor uh, physical capability. She, her aerobic capacity was not there. So uh, she's a perfect-for-a-phase-two type of patient. One of the suggestions was to do the, um, the incline leg press to begin strengthening her leg muscles. So this is this is actually day two that she was up at our facility. And push. One.
1: Good. Push. Two.
0: One down. Then the knees. And push our push, 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 push. Good. Three. And push.
1: Push.
3: Excellent. Four,
0: five, good. Six, good. Okay, so what we were doing with this is we were doing three sets of incline squats, doing about you know seventy percent of a one rep max, where where it was just you know comfortable for her to do, but it was a challenge for her to do. After after we did a set of 10, we would bring the incline up and have her isometrically hold herself there, and we would do active assistive range of motion. So we're trying to work on the lowers and the uppers, and we're getting that weight bearing. Um, After this, we would transfer her back to the bed, and then we would sit edge of bed to work on trunk control. And we would just progressively every day work a little bit more. We would start increasing the incline as she felt more comfortable and as we would try to give her more of a load. Um, And then we would also be working on the sitting balance. Um, so days 2 through 10, she progressed really well. She was up to 45% body weight uh, with the leg presses. She was beginning to sit up. But just like uh, critical patients, the, you, you can take one step forwards and you take a step back with a complication. And an X-ray revealed that she had a pleural effusion on day 10, and uh, they required a thoracentesis, transferred her back to the hospital, um, she was on pressures again and she was there for 22 days again at the short term. So she transferred back to us on the overall day 56 and it was like starting all over again. She was just as weak as she was before, same exact uh, muscle testing. Um, and it was just, it was tough because we made those gains and now we have to kind of start all over and do it again. So we started again uh, with phase two. We resumed the progressive um, uh, leg presses for partial weight and sitting edge of bed. Once she was able to, um, to uh, after about 10 days or so, she was able to sit up edge of bed and kind of hold herself up. And she was weaned from CPAP to the trach collar at that point. Um, this is when we started working on phase three, standing with the, with the uh, platform walker. And we initially worked on just standing, and it was, she would stand for like 10, 15 seconds, and she'd go down, and it would fatigue her. And then um, we would slowly, the next day we would go maybe for a minute. And then I think this is the third day where she was ready to begin taking steps, and this is that video.
5: Three. Okay, put some weight on those toes.
0: Right. You can see how that, mm-hmm. that hydraulic assist really go. helps. No, We're gonna come come forward, just
5: don't panic. Bring that, try and bring that right leg forward. Oh. Yeah, good. good. So, exactly. Now the left. Good. Right. You see how you're shifting your weight? Uh-huh. That's all it is.
0: Straighten those knees out.
5: Yeah, bring your knees. Try and tighten them here. You don't have to be scared, I got you. You're okay. not going anywhere. Okay. Okay. Look at that. Bring the chair behind you. Okay. okay. So, you're so doing you wonderful. What you're doing? I'm barely helping you. You don't realize what you're doing. Try to bring your shoulders. knees back. With
4: oh, i can't. You're
5: doing
4: good. I got it. Go All you've right, got the chair. So hold on. Ready? Uh-huh. One, two, three.
0: Okay. Okay. So I think this is about you're ten ready? days later, and we're every day we're working on walking further and further. Okay.
1: great job.
5: Okay. <laughs> Thank you,
0: ma'am. I'm so proud. Okay, so um so the, her primary goal was walking, and that was the biggest motivator for her was to walk further and further each day. And I'm sure most of you all do that, where you make the goal tomorrow we're getting to that, that place in the in the tile or something. And every day that was her main thing is is I'm going to walk further. But after we did the walking, maybe it would be you know one after one rest we'd walk a little further. We would do an adjunctive therapy uh, to help also improve endurance, and, and uh, this is some of the adjunctive therapies we were doing after the walking. So the bicycle. <laughs> Awesome. We're pushing the, pushing the uh, wheelchair backwards, so again working on the, uh, the extensors, hip the extensors, closed chain. The Wii. One these,
5: it work out my frustration. Right. <laughs>
0: You got (laughs) him! Great job! (laughs) And also we would continue doing the mobile leg press. Now we're just pretty much using it as like a total gym, trying to do closed chain stuff. And you can see uh, she's really at about a mod assist here, where she's about 50%. And you can see how we can find that one rep max.
5: Okay, that's too easy.
0: (laughs) <laughs> so every, we'll just All kind right, of go ready, up to the incline, try to find that one rep, right. and push. A little better. Try to get to where it's just where it feels like a challenging level. Come on down and push. That's a challenge. That's it. <laughs> okay, okay so it we'll, we'll, we'll pull it down a little right bit, there. down about about 80 percent of it, and really work on so strength training. Up right Doing there. like three or four sets come of on ten. Down. Ready? Push. Good. One. Push. Perfect. Two. Okay, so uh, phase four, uh, it was whenever we're ready to start trying to work on getting the weight. She was showing she's uh, better hand strength, better arm strength, and now we need to try to start getting her down where she can use a walker. Okay, so this is the video of um, the first time, and you can see how difficult it is compared to the platform walker
5: down there, you go. Okay, remember what I told you about leaning back? Try and lean forward so okay. you can slide those hands forward. Just straighten out your hips. Just stand there, get your balance a little bit. She's going to be right behind you, so you don't need to be scared. You're not going to fall. I'm okay. not going to let you fall. That right. left leg forward. Mm-hmm. There you go. Okay, well, Feel for all the world. I'm- That's okay. The same thing. There you go.
1: Great job.
0: Okay, the day before this, she was walking like 80 degrees. Straighten out walk. your posture. There and you now go. this is much more. So we're, we're challenging her to her limits of her physical abilities. And that's an appropriate response if we see a little bit of knee buckling and, and a more of a challenge for her. Okay,
5: bring those hands back a little bit. So you stand straight. Stand straighter. Tuck your bottom in. Try and bring that right leg just a little closer and just stand tall for me. There you go. Okay, you want to try and sit down?
0: Okay, so this is the following day, the One, first time trying it two, with a
5: walker. Three. Now. There you go. Okay. Let's push this along. Oh. I got you. I don't want you to know the knees don't buckle. Mm-hmm. you got to look up every now and then. You're doing great. Look up, Dern.
0: Good job.
5: Looking great. Looking great. You're walking with a walker. <laughs> How's it feel? A little better than those parallel bars, huh? Uh Feel like I'm on Saturday's like a crab. That's okay. I'll help you your first time
0: we'll figure it out okay now this is about ten days later every day pushing or going a little bit further I
5: one you stutter seven more today than you have been uh huh uh good or
1: something we all can
5: you're doing great
1: great job thank you <laughs> All right, great. <laughs> All right,
0: So that was the day of discharge to an inpatient rehab center. So the outcome, she was independent with bed mobility, transfers with supervision. She was able to ambulate 150 feet with the rolling walker and supervision. Uh, MRC sum score increased from 18 to 52. And, um, again, she DC'd to inpatient rehab. So some of the uh, benefits in the, with the discussion in this, um, what we found beneficial is that the reduced physical demands uh, of using the equipment allowed longer sessions to improve aerobic capacity. And, um, and you know, compared to the beginning, whenever we were just trying to stand her up, being able to put her at 50% or 30% of her body weight, we were able to get a much longer um, Session. Also, the, the use of the progressive mobility devices it resulted in less physical assistance, and this is really, I think, you know, was a big part of psychologically helping her because she didn't have to have to really, um, you know, d- rely on us for for the assistance. Um, finally, I want to end with this last part of the video. She um, went to rehab. She was there for, I believe, ten days or, or right about two weeks. And then she went to home, uh, went home and had home health therapy for one week. So she came back after that, and she showed us how well she was doing three weeks. And she would all, she always told us that was her goal is to come back and show how well that she could walk. So uh, this is the, the last part. Whoa. Wow! wow. <laughs> <How are you?
5: laughs>
2: yeah. Wow. I told you I would be back walking again. Yes.
4: Yeah, you're really
2: sure. Remember that on yeah. you I am? We well,
4: were looking
5: forward to it. Yes. <laughs> okay. Who's this? Come on here.
2: Okay, well, I want to first thank all of you, you therapists. I mean, really, you're in my heart. Um, I didn't think I was ever going to walk again, but following your direction, getting the encouragement, doing what you asked of me, it worked for me and it'll work for anyone who will give in to
1: that one day at a
2: time yeah just put yourself out there full force yeah. and you you can recover it's amazing
0: so just looking back at when we first saw her to where she was just could barely move her legs and then at discharge so I think this is a, I love this case showing it to students because they never get to see the whole continuum of, you know, from the beginning to the end. And that's really what, what, uh, what you know, I wanted to, to show this is that it's such a rewarding, you know, field that we're in. And um, thank you for letting us share this with you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, who
5: manufactures a hydraulic assist platform
0: walker? That is, that's one from uh, Arjo, it's the Sarah Plus. Yeah, it's actually a stand-aid device that has a lower section, um, it has like a foot section and a, and a knee block, but if you remove that, you can use it as a, um, as, a, uh, as a platform walker. And what I like about it is that it has an arcing movement instead of going straight up and down, which kind of seems to help us a little bit easier
3: we yes, you using the sling with it. We have the same thing, and we we have difficulty utilizing the
0: sling. I don't use the sling. You. No.
3: Yeah. Yes. I'm just curious.
5: Do you have any data for her when she was back in the acute care hospital the second time? If she had any therapy involved or
0: restricted? No, it. I, I, I was hoping to find some, and and I went to that facility and and did try to do a thorough chart review, and I just couldn't find the PT notes. And it was sad. There wasn't there wasn't a valve there, but it's it said it recommended you know passive range of motion from nursing, and and that's that just goes along with what we've been talking about the culture of different places, you know, and, and at that facility that the. the the early mobility is, is hasn't really gotten in there yet. I'm
5: sorry. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, it'll be out in the February issue. Very nice. Very nice. Um, not that I can disclose at this time, <laughs> but but the future is really really exciting. I can say that. So, <laughs> thank you.
2: Yeah, please join me in thanking Dr. Trees again. The final speaker for our um, critical illness. Um, special series is um, Dr. Amy Pollack. And this article is a perspective, and I'm not sure if you know exactly what the purpose of perspectives are in our journal, but perspectives are articles that are written about an area of physical therapy by an expert in that field. And it's not only just a summary of a particular practice area or issue, but the author also then provides their expert opinion and interpretation and views and vision um, on this particular topic. And as you'll see when I um, read Dr. Pollock's introduction, that she certainly fits the bill to be able to address this with her expertise. So Dr. Amy Pollock earned her doctorate in physical therapy from Roslyn Franklin University and is a board-certified specialist in cardiovascular and pulmonary physical therapy. She's a senior physical therapist at the University of Chicago Medical Center and is the program coordinator for cardiovascular and pulmonary rehabilitation. She spent the majority of her career treating patients with critical illness in medical and surgical ICUs. Amy has presented at multiple national and international conferences, including the American Physical Therapy Association. She had a sellout um, presentation last year, if you can remember. Um, the American Occupational Physical Thera- or the American Occupational Therapy Association and the American Thoracic Society. Her research emphasis is on the early therapy involvement in the medical ICU, with articles published in journals including the Lancet and Critical Care Medicine. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Pollock. <laughs> All right. Um,
3: thanks again for staying for the last. Segment of the last session of the conference. I really appreciate you all being here. Um, so I am going to talk about issues impacting the delivery of physical therapy services. Um, uh, my name is the only one up here, but I have to acknowledge the support of my co-author, um, Dr. John P. Cress, who um, is the medical director of our. Uh, of our medical ICU at the University of Chicago, and one of the best physician champions and uh, colleagues that one could ever hope for. So, I have to acknowledge his input here as well. Um, the idea for this paper came basically from presentation. Um, you know, we have in this in this you know the past five or ten years seen a, a lot of influx of. Um, review papers in, in journals across medicine and rehabilitation on issues related to critical care mobility and rehab, including, you know, papers about the effectiveness of rehabilitation in critical illness, about the feasibility and, and, and safety, um, that, you know, of course, we have barriers related to um, cultures in, that exist in our hospitals and our intensive care units um, and that we, of course, need multidisciplinary collaboration collaboration, and also um, papers about sedation eruption and things that will, if we advance them, help us to intervene earlier with our patients. And so to me, these are all topics that, that definitely do um, uh, pertain to rehabilitation professionals, but also to the medical community as a whole. And when I have been presenting, you know, the physical therapists that I'm speaking to say, well, these are all well and good, but I have questions related to the um, you know, the, the the certain issues that may be specific to the physical therapy profession. So I tried to kind of pick some of those out. You know, I get questions regarding, um, you know, competency. So these are very sick patients that we are trying to intervene with. And how do we ensure that our therapists are competent and are safely able to manage these patients? Um, what are the implications if here are, here's a maybe additional volume of patients in your institution what are the implications for staffing and personnel do we need more therapists Um, do we need to staff longer hours these kinds of things that we don't necessarily know yet um, prioritization. Okay, how do I prioritize? If I have a patient who's going to be discharged this afternoon and needs to be seen by a physical therapist, does that patient trump somebody who will be here for a while but definitely will get weaker in the next 24 hours if we don't see them? How do we, how do we work with that? Um, there is, it, rightfully so, an emphasis on, um, on developing and identifying outcome measures in, in all areas of practice, including critical care. And then, um, um, you know, what happens when a patient leaves the ICU? We know that they have lingering deficits, and so what, what are the implications for um, practitioners outside of acute hospitals um, for intervening on patients who have lingering deficits? Um, as Dr. Otaki mentioned um what's really fun about a perspectives article is that I get to review the literature and then add my perspective. So that was, um, that was kind of interesting. And so what I'm going to aim to do in the short time I have to present, um, I, there's 60-some articles referenced in the paper that I wrote, so I can't mention them all. As I go through each topic, but I'm going to kind of summarize um, what's available and, and, um, and give some of my um, recommendations for where we can go from here. And then what's nice is that the articles are already available if you want more details on each individual article. So let's start with competence. Um, so as most of you know, um, working with patients in the ICU is a continuous and ongoing Risk benefit analysis. And so, and sometimes it's minute to minute. You know, these patients are very sick and they're constantly changing. And the therapists that are working with these patients need to be able to participate in rapid decision making um, due to this constant change in status to understand the implications of bed rest and medical interventions and lines and tubes and devices and these things that, um, you know, what, what is actually happening with the patient. To understand the oxygen transport system, how that can be affected by path pathology, and um, how we can potentially address that. And then be able to safely intervene in a complex environment. So that's why um, competency is important and why so many people have questions about how do we ensure competence. Well, um, what we can ascertained from the literature is that there are different areas that address clinical competency, starting with, of course, um, entry-level preparation, um, establishing clinical competence in the clinics, um, um, and then potentially moving towards specialist certification, advanced clinical education in these areas. Um, in terms of academic preparation, you know, there is no document that says, you know, an entry-level physical therapist should have these skills exactly to to practice in acute or critical care, but we have a few that sort of allude to it. Um, They include um, the APTA's minimum required skills of a physical therapy graduate's entry-level document in which uh, the skills that are required of a graduate are not organized by clinical setting but include things that are certainly relevant to acute care, including um, the the student should be able to read a single-lead EKG, should be able to... um, Test and intervene on conditions of the cardiopulmonary system things that we definitely do do on a daily basis um, there's the normative model of physical therapist professional education which outlines values related to physical therapist education in order to help assess programs that are um, putting out physical therapy graduates and and it um, suggests you know students or graduates should be able to do things like um, describe effects of bed rest, describe the oxygen transport system, and um, things like describing systemic effects of blood that, uh, that go into blood pressure. And then there's the APTA Physical Therapist Clinical Education Principles, which outline standards related to the performance of a physical therapy graduate. And of note in this document is a suggestion that to achieve entry-level competence in acute care, a student should have 10 to 12 weeks of experience in that um, clinical environment. Well, that would be all well and good, except for we know also from the literature that there is a lack of available sites for acute care um, um, clinical education, um, and this, you know, can be due to you know it's difficult to place because therapists are concerned about productivity, or there are definite um, and real staff shortages, and things that make it very difficult to get our students into those environments. And so, some of the um, solutions that have been suggested include um, using the two-to-one model of clinical education in which two students are paired with one clinical instructor. Um, And the benefit of this is that it can both enhance a student's skills and um, perhaps uh, take some of the load off the therapist, allowing them to uh, meet their productivity standards at their institution. I have done this myself. Um, I have found it's kind of helpful if I have a student start a little bit early if they stagger a bit. So if I have someone start and then maybe four weeks later or six weeks later the next student starts so that the first student can help teach the second student, which takes a little bit off of my load, um, and, and 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 they can work together in that way. Um, so that helps a lot. It also helps, of course, the student who's teaching to learn. Um, and then another a possible... Um, Adjunct to clinical education is the use of um, patient simulation. So, if we have ICU simulation labs where the students can go in and there's a you know a, a you know a, not a live patient but a dummy patient and but but monitors that can be. Um, um, you know, adjusted to sort of act as if you were real time with a patient. They can change settings, they can change EKG readings. Those kind of things, of course, is no substitution for treating an actual patient, but may kind of help with the learning. I know that when I'm teaching in an entry-level program, one of my frustrations is that it's so much information but no application. And I get that they need a basis before they move to the clinic, but if there was a more availability of these systems, it might be helpful. Um, then, of course, um, after we talk about um, student um, training, we need to think about clinical competence. And there is very little available literature in the rehabilitation journals on um, competency you know, systems or programs or, or, or even what we need to have our therapists achieve to be practicing in acute or critical care. There are a couple examples in the nursing and pharmacy journals that have published their um, systems and standards for training training healthcare professionals in those professions in intensive care units. Um, There is only one that I know of um, in in a rehab journal, and that was published by the Harris Group um, out of Yale New Haven Hospital, where they published um, their uh, competency program, which included things like the therapist will be able to identify the role of the rehab services in the intensive care unit, will be able to interpret information, manage lines and ventilators and those kinds of things. I put this off here. This is the um, competency form. One of them that we use at the University of Chicago is by no means am I suggesting it is the way to go. It's just what we have developed, and you've got that in your handout if you're interested. Um, you know, In our facility, um, a senior therapist must um, see... A, a newer therapist demonstrate all these activities multiple times before they will be checked off on their competency so you know we could really use a lot more in the literature on that topic to help guide us in developing competencies um, <clears throat> you know of course those things help a lot but the significance of clinical experience cannot be overlooked um, uh, we have a study that was published in 2010 in the Physiotherapy Theory and Practice Journal, and it, um, it was looking at physical therapist practice in the area of cardiopulmonary physical therapy, and discovered that those therapists that had been practicing for seven years or more, compared to those had been practicing for fewer than seven years, demonstrated um, more developed and multidimensional knowledge base. And had a more refined approach to clinical decision making. So um, that was not again in the area of acute or clinical um, or critical care. But I think we can. It was a nice uh, study to show that you know more experience might be better. That's sort of intuitive, but you know um, helpful to know. Um, and then you know um, in the the, the ABT, ABPTs, which is the American Board of Physical Therapy Specialists has certified in eight different specialty areas. Um, 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 uh, special certification um, in you know orthopedics, neuro cardiopulmonary, and those kinds of things, I think um, that for therapists in the practice in acute care, we often specialize in areas that are relevant to what we 're doing cardiopulmonary neuro geriatrics, maybe, but they, that may not be capturing all of the unique skills and knowledge of an acute care or critical care practitioner. And I think that it is imperative that we as a group work together, and I know the ball's in motion. The acute care section has been working on helping define the specialty skills of an acute care practitioner um, in a a, um, practice analysis or something that we can use to help establish um, both specialist certification and acute care residencies in that area. Another I didn't put up here, but I think um, what may actually come first is um, critical care fellowships that may be slightly easier to establish and definitely are also needed. Um, So uh, moving on to the next topic, um, a reasonable concern when we're talking about intervening with patients earlier is the potential impact on personnel resources, Um, you know, Hospital staffing, there's a nationwide shortage in, in acute care, and that's published data. And, um, and so um, a lot of times, of course, administrators want to know, what does this mean for personnel and what does this mean for cost? And so um, there's published information on um, mobility teams. So who needs to be performing these interventions? And <clears throat> on the um, available literature... The the composition of mobility teams varies quite a bit. You know, there's physical therapy, occupational therapy, nursing assistants, nurses, and different uh, assistants and technicians. Um, And so the number of practitioners and, and who they are varies, but what's interesting is that all of these mobility teams includes a physical therapist. So I think we can at least say that given these published articles, along with a history of support for rehabilitation in critical care and say that a physical therapist should be an integral part of the critical care team. Now, to save on costs, a hospital administration might be tempted to rely solely or, or more so on nursing to... Um, to mobilize patients, which I think that definitely nursing needs to be a part of the mobilization team. But um, in one study that was published by um, Gars and Serrano and their team, um, they noted that compared to nurses, physical therapists achieved a higher level of mobilization in patients in the intensive care unit and also cited um, the nurses and the physical therapists, when they did not mobilize a patient, cited different reasons for that. So the... uh, Nurses' reasons might be um, hemodynamic instability or the presence of continuous renal rep- replacement therapy, where the physical therapist might be something more like um, neurological impairment. So, we're definitely looking at these patients from mobility from a different point of view, which um, is, again, probably sort of intuitive. But um, in addition to that, um, you know, it is the impairments of patients who you know these patients who are critically ill are often their impairments are things like atrophy deconditioning and cardiopulmonary compromise which are those impairments that are best managed by physical therapists um, to achieve a higher level of function so i think you know physical therapists are really needed Um, and then Again, what is the um, impact on uh, resources and cost? And there is very little data, although some more is coming out just recently that I'll touch upon, even though I didn't include it in here. Um, so uh, in our paper out of University of Chicago in 2008, um, we, we had an intervention group and a control group. And all of the patients in the uh, intervention group received the intervention, which was physical therapy. But... Um, 95% of the patients in the control group also receive physical therapy at some point during their hospital stay. So, if the question is, will we need to provide more physical therapy? This suggests maybe not. Maybe we're just front loading it a little bit. You know, maybe if we're seeing these patients earlier, maybe they need less therapy at the tail end. Um, however, the papers um, that came out of uh, Hopkins and uh, Wake Forest did demonstrate that the, th- the patients in the intervention group got more accessions during both their ICU and hospital stay. So perhaps um, there is... Um, um, there is more uh, need or more volumes than, um, than just shifting it around. And so what might be the implications for cost on that? Well, um, the folks at Wake Forest, Peter Morris and his group, of course, published the article that's been referenced many times today um, and had that um, pr- prospective cohort study where they implemented a mobility protocol. So what they did also in that paper was they took, they, they um, estimated the costs of the the total cost of the hospital stay for the patients that were in the usual care versus the intervention group, minus those costs, and got about $500,000. And then they calculated the cost of the mobility team, including salary and benefits, within that same period of time and got $250,000. So it's approximately, using their data, a $250,000 savings to the hospital within the period of time that they did this project, which I believe was 24 months Um, And along with the fact that many papers are citing a decreased hospital and ICU length of stay and a decreased um, days on the ventilator, which all are, you know, a hospital and ICU stays are expensive, and so are days on the ventilator. So if we are decreasing those things, theoretically we're decreasing costs. So um, what's very exciting is in the past week or two, a couple new um, bits of information have come out on this topic. Um, uh, the folks at Hopkins have published a paper that is going to come out um, or is out in EPUB right now. Um, and what they did is they, they developed a financial model using all the available data from various papers and also the data that they had from their own quality improvement project. And they um, created um, a projection that showed that... Um, in a year's time, they could save the hospital about $817,000 for patients who received early rehab. Um, And so, again, that paper is just about to come out, but that's sort of the the brief synopsis of that. And then um, a an abstract has just been accepted by, for presentation at the American Thoracic Society Conference by our group at University of Chicago. And what we did is we took um, our, our patients that were in our intervention group, in our Lancet paper, and we uh, followed them, followed up with them six months later and said, how many days were you in an institution following your discharge from the hospital? And we found that the patients in the intervention group had had more institution-free days than the patients in the control group. So again, there's no direct costs calculated into that, but less institution days means less costs. Um, And then there's always the question that comes up, well, again, how do I prioritize these patients? Well, there is... Very little data. I think this is, this, if we could add to the, the body of knowledge here, we'd be in good shape because we really need to know, again, if we, if we are seeing people on the tail end, are we doing them more good than we are, you know, if we see them at the beginning of the stay? How do we prioritize when we've got people with discharge needs, we've got people that are really sick that also need us? And then, so that's across the hospital, but also within the ICU, um, The studies that have been published currently, you know, for the research um, design, have looked at patients who are primarily functionally independent when they enter the hospital. So we are showing that in those patients, we return to a greater level of functional independence when we implement early mobilization. Will it work on patients who don't enter the hospital with a high level of pre-morbid function? I think so, but we don't know. So we need more articles on that as well. And again, um, um, we need to be able to demonstrate outcomes in some kind of objective and meaningful way. And so there are a variety of outcome measures that have been used in acute and critical care. Um, All of these have their pluses and their minuses. Um, you know, the FIM is often used, and then and then these others, the U-Race and the Johns Hopkins acute care score are sort of modified FIMs. Um, you know, we get to the acute care indes- index of fu- function and um, the PFIT, and what they're trying to do is, is adapt these scales to capture as much as we can about um, a patient's function at all levels of mobility. So if, a, you know, a, the PFIT tried to say, well, I want to Know if a patient who's rolling in bed is is doing a little bit better. You know if they're not able to get out of bed, how do I show function? So, so these are um, a, a handful of ones to kind of look into if you're if you're interested um, in implementing outcome measures in your ICUs. Um, and then I think aside from having um, functional outcome measures, we're also going to need to implement um, other outcome measures. Um, you know, again in the study that we published in the Lancet. We had patients in our intervention group that returned to, um, to functional independence prior to discharge from the hospital, but those patients did not demonstrate a significant increase in strength. So... If we are only looking at functional outcomes with those patients, we may be missing some of the more subtle strength deficits and impairments that they're leaving the hospital with. If we know about those things by using tools that are both um, reliable and have been validated in the critical care population, which include manual muscle testing and handheld dynamometry, maybe we can identify some of these impairments and help us to refer them to the appropriate rehabilitation professionals down the road. Um, so we know that even five years following um, acute respiratory distress syndrome and critical illness, um, while a patient's lung function or the, or the you know the medical deficit that brought them into the ICU may be resolved, um, many impairments in terms of you know quality of life, um, uh, functional capacity, and, and those kind of things persist. So um, what happens to these patients after they leave the hospital, and what can we do to sort of improve their outcomes? Um, There has been a a gathering by the Society of Critical Care Medicine of stakeholders that are interested in um, what happens to these patients um, after what we're now calling post-intensive care syndrome. And um, um, one of the things, what they did is they met this is, these were physicians and, and nurse practitioners and physical therapists and occupational therapists and speech therapists and all kinds of um, healthcare professionals who have an interest in, in critical care. And um, they sat down and talked about issues that, that need to be discussed and, and need to be addressed. And one of them, they, they noted that there is a lack of awareness in both the medical communities and the general population in um, the, the um, epidemic of um, critical care um, syndrome, so post, post-ICU syndrome. So um, one thing that we may need to do is assess the current knowledge. You know, if we have an outpatient therapist who has a patient come in who had been critically ill and may not quite understand all of the potential deficits that can exist, they may not be screening for some of these and, and asking about those. So maybe we can do a study on the current knowledge of physical therapists across institutions so that we know where the deficits are so we know what to address. Um, I think there may be a role for physical therapists in interdisciplinary m- follow-up clinics, medical (laughs) clinics, so if our patients are coming back to meet with their pulmonologist or their cardiac surgeon or their cardiologist or whoever it might be, maybe we can intervene in those clinics, at least assess the patients a little bit out from their hospital stay, and see if we can help again with the referring to the appropriate practitioner. you know, we know that cardiac and pulmonary rehab, which consists of both group exercise and education, have been associated with um, decreased hospital readmissions, decreased mortality, and increased exercise capacity in the patients that participate in that. So is there a need for follow-up um, clinics or group, group um, exercise and education for our patients with critical illness? Um, and... The only study that currently exists on that is um, that one that described a six-week program of exercise and education for survivors of critical illness. And after participating in this, the patients who did had um, an increased six-minute walk test distance, and increased scores on their anxiety and de- or in- improved scores on their um, anxiety and depression scales. Um, And then there have been mixed results from four different studies that looked at in-home therapy programs for patients who have survived critical illness. Um, and, And if you look at the four of them altogether, they suggest that it may be beneficial to have programs in the home, but that the specific parameters of those need to be better described. And some of those suggest that a home based program may not be effective, but that information may further strengthen our argument that um, we need to be intervening earlier to prevent these issues in the ICU. So we have a lot of work to do. We need to, you know, again, further describe how we're going to measure competency and what what, what it takes to be competent in the ICU to um, have further data to support our services on what our personnel implications will be and costs, um, um, how do we prioritize, um, what kind of measures are we going to use, and how are we going to further address um, the impairments that persist after recovery from critical illness.
2: I'm going to take two questions for Dr. Pollock, and then we can, I know time is short, we need to leave that, be but we can open it up for questions to the panel then, too. So questions for Dr. Pollock? A
4: lot to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. No. Was, we people into acute care. We spend so much time doing orientation with them in getting up and running. What do we do to keep them there? And how do we maintain, how do we develop them into leaders so that they inspire other people to stay in, in acute care?
3: The question was: once we get people into acute care and we get them trained enough to speed, how do we keep them there and keep them inspired to be kind of pushing this along? And I think that is a great question. And if anyone has any ideas and would like to throw it out there, I'd love to hear them. But I do think one, one way to do that is to encourage the development of post-professional programs. If we have fellowships in critical care, we're going to be developing leaders and experts in the field. And if we can then disseminate those people out to other hospitals and keep the ball rolling, I think that's going to help a lot. Yeah.
5: I mean I think looking to our outpatient colleagues, so I work in both in private outpatient clinic and in IC. And I think if we look to our outpatient colleagues, they're kind of a little bit ahead of us in this model as far as residencies and are concerned. Um, and it's not perfect from a content standpoint by any means at this point or even the systems process. Um, but if you look at the medical model, I mean those folks aren't out there on an island making decisions doing things. And you build this kind of culture of uh, accountability, but also this culture that's sustainable. Where you have people who either do acute care residencies or critical care residencies, or maybe it's a acute care and that people talk about, a critical care fellowship. And then what you get is you kind of get this sustainable model that churns out this high-level kind of the scale of that facility. so they can take that wherever they go. And I think that also brings into bringing our research data as well. But most of the time, we you're doing a residency and fellowship, we're collecting some data and involved in some research. And we've hit a lot of issues across different angles. Because, I Because, mean, as you alluded to, and others, we still don't know what to expect of our new graduates. Like, what's entry level for acute care? Is acute care even an entry level skill? Or is that like a specialty all of the time that you can step into it? Like, you can go into the ICU. I mean, These are all no questions. Facilities have and we to answer our facilities, but as a profession, still like we haven't fleshed that out. Yeah. Um, so I think collaborating with some of our outpatient folks and the to better model think, might help us. Yeah,
3: I just want to say thank you on behalf of like we're at a level one trauma center and we're we're relatively. Progressive. We compared to like our community hospital colleagues, you know. So we have therapy in the ICU. We certainly are understaffed and struggle on a day-to-day basis with prioritization, with personnel, with who we have competencies. We're doing a lot of these things. Um, but coming here and listening to the progressive things that many of you are doing is so inspiring. And it's, I'm so thankful that you have the opportunity. Not that we don't. That's not what I'm saying. Knowing <laughs> that Hopkins is going to be publishing their financial plan, like we've been trying to to our administrators for years already, based on your data, you know, and it's like, finally, maybe there's something else that we can say. Look, <laughs> you know, it's working other places. Please bring it to us. You know, thank so you. Thank you. Yeah, Come back here. yeah. yeah. Chris. Uh, I just want to let you know that uh, we just uh, started a fellowship
2: program at our facility in Houston, and we just oh. selected our first fellow and starting in uh, next month. So we have a one-year fellowship program. <laughs> Congratulations, excellent. So, so please join me again to um, thank Dr. Pollock for a very obviously inspiring, thought-provoking talk. Thank you very much. Um, I think in the nature of time, I would just like to once again to thank the um, PTJ, you know, for letting us he- to have the opportunity to do this special issue and bring this research forward. It's a member benefit, so we all contribute to this. So thank you, members, for, again, giving us this opportunity. And hopefully... The information that's provided in all these different venues, case reports, research reports, perspectives, our quality improvement initiatives, study protocols, all of these things hopefully will add, you know, some fire to you and use, be a really great resource as we try and address the challenges of creating new and innovative um, interventions for our patients, being great Interprofessional team members, and really trying to raise that awareness of post intensive care syndrome across the spectrum of care. So, thank you so much for your um, attention, your great questions. I think the team will hang around for a little bit if you want to talk to them informally, but thank you so much. So, we'll conclude the formal part of our presentation now.